My name is Peter Beinart. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very grateful to be joined today uh, by Lior Amichai, who is the executive director of Yesh Din, uh, an Israeli human rights organization that monitors, research, and conducts legal and public advocacy regarding human rights violations inherent in Israel's prolonged occupation of the West Bank. Uh, Lior, thanks very much for taking a few minutes to chat. Um, so I think it bears noting that we're talking at a difficult time. Um, I'm, uh, you are speaking from Israel, and um, there's been violence in recent days between uh, Israel and Gaza. Um, I certainly hope that you are staying safe, that everyone in Israel and Gaza is staying safe. And although we're not directly going to discuss that topic, um, I hope that the, some of the broader discussions that we'll be having about um, Israeli control in the West Bank and uh, and more broadly uh, over Palestinians will will bear on some of the root causes of the hostility that continues to plague both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, so, Lior, one of the topics that I know Yeshdin has been working on um, uh, is this question of annexation of uh, parts of the West Bank. It got a fair amount of attention in the United States. The prospect that uh, an Israeli government might formally annex de jure, annex parts of the West Bank. Um, but I know that you have done a lot of thinking and, and work on um, not just de jure annexation, but also de facto annexation. So I wonder if you could talk about what annexation really means on the ground. Well, thank you, Peter, and and I'm really uh, glad for this opportunity because I believe that there's a lot of important things to say about annexation. Uh, I think the first and, and foremost, and uh, and that's like should be one of the assumptions, is that uh, from the first day of the occupation, uh, there has been a de facto annexation, uh, which is uh, implemented through the occupation itself, the occupation policies, but of course to the you know most notably the settlement enterprise. Uh, the roads, the infrastructure, the settlements themselves, the, the two uh, uh, legal systems that are applied in the occupied territories, etc. Now, uh, what we're seeing is that uh, since April, uh, there's been a lot of discussion, uh, slightly before, but, but right before the elections in April in Israel, and then again before the elections in September, annexation became one of the hot topics, uh, I believe primarily because Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, publicly stated that he intends to formally annex uh, parts of the West Bank. And in April, I believe it was Area C or the entire West Bank. In September, it was the Jordan Valley. And all of a sudden, people are talking about annexation. And, and I think what, should, what we're noticing at Ijedin, uh is that, uh, again, one, there is, a, there is a de facto annexation that's going on uh, for so long. And two is that the legalistic, the de jure annexation, the official annexation is actually already taking place. Uh, we have noticed that it's happening uh, first and foremost through uh, since uh, Trump came into power. Uh, and it's in, we can characterize it, I think, in, in three main ways. One is through legislation. Uh, for the first time since, uh, uh, or for the first time since 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, the Israeli parliament uh, or actually the first legislation was 2017. But in 2017, for the first time, the Israeli parliament uh, took authority and responsibility and, and legislated over the occupied territories. 
Now, what does that mean? It's 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 if it's the same as if the Israeli Parliament would legislate over uh, Cyprus or the states or Europe. It, it doesn't matter. They took the Parliament of Israel took upon itself responsibility and authority about territories beyond its jurisdiction, which it never did so before officially. Uh, the second thing is that we're seeing uh, in recent years new interpretations, uh, especially headed by the Ministry of Justice and the Attorney General, uh, interpretations that all of a sudden are giving, are, 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 are changing. So interpretations that in the past did not enable and all of a sudden are enabling taking over of Palestinian private property in the occupied territories. And, and the third, of course, is uh, the the, it's more related to the de facto annexation, but it's, there's, a, there's an intensified process uh, of retroactively legalizing roughly 100 uh, unofficial, unauthorized outposts, so settlements uh, that are also uh, uh, without the approval of the Israeli legal system uh, in the occupied territories, which will have uh, dramatic implications for the future of this region uh, if, if it will continue. And I, I'd be more than happy to expand on every one of these three sort of characteristics that we're noticing, if I may. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the takeover of, of, of privately owned Palestinian land. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh, what the process has been in the past for how land that uh, Palestinians claim as their own uh, ends up being part of settlements and um, and how that process has changed if it's if it's changed recently. Yeah, well, well, I don't I, I don't want to go to the entire history of the yeah. settlement enterprise, but, but really, roughly, if we, if we if we have to go back to the history, then you can say that in the the first decade or uh, until uh, the Alon More, the famous Alon More case in nineteen seventy nine. Uh, the governments of Israel established settlements uh, on private Palestinian land under the disguise or the excuse that it's for military purposes. And, and the justification, and the way they did it, the way they, they issued military orders saying that we need to take over this land for military purposes, uh, and then it didn't matter if the, the lands are private or public. Uh, and many of the settlements that were built during this period are built on private Palestinian land. And to this date, uh, Israel is renewing uh, the orders that are taking over these lands uh, for security reasons, although there are civilian settlements by all means. What's the legal mechanism by which Israel can take land that is privately owned by a Palestinian family and then uh, give, give it to, to a settlement, to, for the building of a settlement, so, so Jewish settlement? Yeah, so this was done in the 70s. Mm -hmm. This is predominantly in the 70s. Israel is taking private Palestinian land and justifying it, it for the establishment of a settlement and justifying this under the security needs. Mm -hmm. uh, settlements are, are justified to the courts as a security issue, and this is how they do it in the 70s. Okay. In, in 1979, there's a famous case that all of a sudden, the courts rule uh, against this process, and they say, well, you know what? Actually, settlements are, are civilian, uh, civilian entities, and they cannot be justified for security means. Uh, and Israel stops this officially this process of, of may, taking or creating or, or, or signing military orders uh, to take private Palestinian land for the establishment of settlements. Uh, but something uh, 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 very bad is, is, is a result of this. And during the 80s, we see a large process uh, where the Israeli Ministry of Justice uh, is going with helicopters over the occupied territories and changing the status of lands of, of 
Palestinian lands and the occupied territories from public to private. Now, I don't think it's worthwhile that we go into the details of this. However, uh, uh, large portions of, of public lands in the 1980s are changing their, their, uh, their status from, publicly, uh, 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 from, public use to, to private, uh, from private use to public use, and then enabling Israel to justify the establishment of settlements on these lands. So, of course, it should be mentioned that according to international law, all settlements, regardless on, on if, they're, if they're established on private or public lands, are illegal and unlawful, etc. However, Israel justifies that the legal courts in Israel enabled uh, the establishment of settlements uh, since, the, uh, since 1979 on public lands. Uh, and, and this is how Israel is, is, is doing this since the 1980s. They're, they're, transform- they're changing uh, the status of many lands from uh, private to public, and then they establish settlements on these lands, and this is done to the 80s. Now, I do want to jump forward to uh, the Oslo Accords and the mid-1990s, where Israel is, and, and is on a, on a, on, is on a uh, two-state uh, solution uh, a peace process, and the government of Israel says uh, or states that it won't establish any more settlements uh, in the occupied territories. And officially, it doesn't establish new settlements, but it does many other things. And one of the main things, like the major things that they do is it creates about 100 or, or more than 100 new settlements, which are termed outposts. Uh, these outposts are, are settlements by all means. They're Israeli communities in the occupied territories. And the only difference is that they're unlawful, even according to the Israeli legal system. Now, Yesh Din, as well as other organizations like Settlements Watch and Peace Now and Akri and Palestinian lawyers, uh, started fighting uh, these illegal or unauthorized outposts. And they did so through the, the courts and through the public, uh, uh, through public campaigns. And at courts, uh, it, it was, it was, it was uh, you could see the different or the nuance, the different sort of uh, arguments that Israel or the official Israel was, was saying. So to the the international community, Israel, was saying, well, you know what? These are small communities. They're not affecting the two-state solution. They're insignificant. They're illegal. They're headed by, by a small minority. They're not making any effect on the ground. To the right-wing public, the government of Israel was saying, capture the hilltops. Go grab them. Take them over. We'll, and they supported them. They supported them through legal means, through military aid, and, and enabled their, their erection. And, and to the courts... In the cases that we were leading, uh, they said, well, you know what? It's true. They are illegal. Uh, they, they have demolition orders. They, they, don't have, uh, they don't have approvals or permits to be established. And you know what? We will demolish them, only it's not the right time. Uh, we'll demolish them in the future. And these cases started to pile up. Uh, and more and more cases came. And, and, uh, and uh, at some point... Uh, the Israeli government changes its policy. And it says, well, you know what? If these outposts, which many of them are built on private land, but in 2011, 2012, uh, and we issued a report about this as well, uh, from occupation to annexation back in 2015, uh, uh, Israel, the government of Israel says to the courts, well, you know what? If it's on uh, private land, of course, we will evacuate them. It's, it's unlawful. It's, it's thievery. We can't justify settlements on private land. However, if it's on public land, 
we will retroactively legalize. And this was very dramatic because it enabled, uh, it, it sent the settler groups a green light to establish more and more outposts as long as they're not on private land. And uh, they knew that they could continue uh, uh, to build with, uh, illegally with Israeli backing eventually if anybody will try to challenge them. Can you just talk uh, a little? A little uh, however, go ahead. Go ahead. So I just want to, yeah. to finish the, 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 so the perspective that this changed in 2017. Because in 2017, uh, we continued our struggle against this uh, when we had, we, with a court ordered the uh, eviction of the outpost, the settlement of Amona, uh, which was built entirely on private Palestinian land. And then the game changed, uh, and this is how we, we end up where we are right now. Because in, in, the, in February 2017, when the government of Israel evacuates the settlement of Amona because of a legal case of a, of a, you know, of, of a human rights organization, uh, uh, that represented landowners, uh, 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 then if the government of, of Israel uh, doesn't believe it. And they say, wait, how could this be that we're evacuating a settlement when there is a, a right-wing majority, a right-wing government, and there's Trump in the White House? And, to, and there's no such thing as a peace process or anything of that sort. There's no pressure by any means of us to accept of this petition and the court order. Why are we evacuating the settlement? And this political context that changed uh, due to the, uh, uh, the inauguration of Trump into power uh, made the Israeli parliament to legislate what we term as the regularization bill or the confiscation bill, which is, was the first bill. And if we talked about the decision, it's the first bill that the Israeli parliament legislated that is on territories beyond its sovereignty. So on territories and the occupied territories. And the bill, in essence, it says, that if, uh, if uh, Avraham built on Ibrahim's land, or if Moshe built on Musa's land, or if David built on Daoud's land, then the Israeli citizen takes over the land, or it becomes the legal owner of these lands. So if an Israeli citizen stole private Palestinian land unlawfully, then the regularization bill in the occupied territories, of course, then the regularization bill says, well, now it's his or hers. And uh, this was dramatic, and we've ch- we're challenging this at court alongside Akri and Pisnau and Adala and El Mizan. And the court uh, is expected to give its, its verdict sometime whenever it decides to do so. But this was a major shift, and, and this is dramatic because if in the past, if, if we talked about the taking over of public land uh, in 2011, 2012, now there's sort of a wink to the settlers, uh, you can also take over privately. And it's even more so because uh, the Israeli government is anticipating that it will lose at the court. Not because there's, you know, the, the judges in the Israeli court are so favorable of anti-occupation or, or, or fighting against the expansion of settlements. Absolutely not. But still, they anticipate that the courts will rule against this legislation make and, and revoke this bill. However, Israel, the government of Israel anticipating this already established a committee that is, that is already working. And, and that this committee is working or already ended, uh, and now it's under, is, is in the making, to find other means to take over private Palestinian land, uh, just not through legislation. They're saying, okay, the court will struck down the, our, 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 our bill. It's really unconstitutional. Uh, there's no chances that the courts will, or there's only a small chance that the court will accept it. So let's find other means 
And we just recently published a report about this. It's, it's on the Zandberg re- report. Uh, so the Zandberg committee, a judge by the name of Zandberg headed this committee. And the entire purpose of this committee was to find ways to legalize the unauthorized outposts, many of them on private Palestinian land. So this is where we are. Uh, in, a, in an era where the Israeli government is leading the pact of finding ways of taking over of private Palestinian land. And what would you say is the, the long-term strategy behind all of this, if there is one, from, by the Israeli, the Israeli right? Is, this a, a, is, there, is there some end game here, or do you think this is just a series of improvisational moves in response to just basically make sure that whatever settlers want to do, settlers can do? No, I think that for the first time, it, uh, it became evident that there is an end goal. Uh, you know, human rights groups, Palestinian groups uh, in the past have been arguing this, and it was very hard uh, to claim this in, in public because the international community was accepting uh, the official uh, arguments of the Israeli foreign ministry and Israeli uh, government spokespeople. And we're saying, no, we're in favor of the two-state solution. You know, it's, it's once we reach an agreement... Uh, We'll, uh, we'll, we'll return the lands or we'll find an agreement. And like we did in Sinai, like uh, we withdrew from, from uh, uh, South Lebanon, we can change this, etc. Recently, uh, and, and especially since Trump is in power, the Israeli government all of a sudden is, is boldly speaking and saying, well, you know what, there is no end goal. Or the other is an end goal. But the end goal is not freedom for Palestinians. The end goal is, is to maintain Palestinians under occupation forever. And we will maintain these territories and keep the Palestinians without civil uh, rights and uh, under uh, vast human rights violations forever. This is our end goal. Our end goal is to maintain these territories and, and, if, and if you wish, uh, apartheid. This is, this is what the official policy right now. Because one has to ask himself or herself that if the government of Israel, uh, uh, if we're talking about annexation, it's a bis, it, you know, this, this, even this word is, is, is a process that we should speak about, but it's also a little bit laundering the word, because what is annexation without a full rights for the Palestinian people? What is annexation without full rights for the people that are being in the territory that's being annexed? Uh, and, and, and the other thing is that it, 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 it means that it wishes to maintain the status of the Palestinians forever. So this is, I think this is the end goal uh, of the right-wing groups. It was, I, I believe that it was always the end goal. But in recent years, uh, they're talking about it bluntly also in English, and, uh, and so we can, it's easier to expose it. So from the perspective of someone um, you know, who believes in democratic ideals and in equality under the law, beyond just the moral uh, problem with this, it seems to me that the, the response would be, to the right, how how do you think this could possibly work over the long term? That people will not simply uh, indefinitely sit back and live without basic rights, uh, um, kind of passively, as you've taken more and more of their land. Um, that uh, that this is a recipe for for more and more conflict. Do you think that the the Israeli right believes that the Palestinians essentially they can simply crush their spirit so they will accept this or that they they do imagine future rounds of, of violence and they've just accepted that as a necessary kind of part of of of, of israel's existence look okay, i'll say this i i am a firm believer that the occupation cannot sustain itself and it will end 
Uh, it's a matter of time and it's a matter of, of how groups uh, will take action and how we mobilize people to, uh, into the struggle to end it. But it will end. Uh, uh, however, uh, what we're noticing, and this is something to note for both the Israeli public and the international community, that uh, the Israeli propaganda machines, the Israeli government, the spokespeople of the foreign ministry and the government, the prime minister's office, are working very hard to uh, in pushing their their statements, and uh, you know, in the past, I thought uh, that you know people were troubled by by the exact question that you were you were raising. What's the end goal of the right wing? Because if it's not a two state solution, or if it's not a, a democracy uh, uh, for all, then what is it? And of course, it's un you know you cannot accept it's unacceptable that there will be a solution that 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 suggests that the end goal is less right for one group. Uh, but now it seems that uh, that uh, we're. We, I think it becomes uh, become aware that people are buying in to the argument that the government of Israel will say. And, and I'll give some examples. Uh, uh, I think the government of Israel is uh, is always checking itself that it, that it's that it manages to uh, to stay a centimeter or an inch below. An overall international criticism. So even under Trump, where Israel feels that it can do a lot, it still is not officially annexing all the territories because it predicts that this will cause international backlash. It's too much to do it at once. So what are they doing? They're continuing the de facto annexation, and for the first time, they started the de jure annexation through legislation and new interpretation. However, uh, uh, there are other ways to annex the territories. And in the future, if Israel will feel more confident, maybe it will annex just one settlement or just a couple of settlements or just one area. And then it will tell the international community, oh, look, it's, it's not a big difference. It's not changing the two-state solution op- possibility. We're not removing any Palestinian from her home. Uh, we're not making really any changes to the ground. These are all the arguments that people who are in the business are, are already fed up and, and already know these arguments by heart. And for the Israeli public, they will say they, they, they do what they do constantly is to portray the Israeli public as the victim of this. Oh, we uh, uh, we can't reach a two-state solution because of the Palestinians. Yes, it's, it's their fault. Look at their leadership. Look, they're either too weak or they're too violent, and and they never take responsibility for its actions for maintaining this occupation, for prolonging it, for creating these settlements, for, for enabling this, this dual legal system that has no law enforcement and Israeli violations towards Palestinians, uh, etc. But nevertheless, puts the blame to the Palestinians and, and eventually succeeding in, at least uh, to a certain degree, uh, in the public uh, uh, that is accepting the blame, putting the blame on the Palestinians and eventually ex- enabling the, the government to continue with its policies. So the um, you mentioned the international community, and one of the debates that's been taking place here in the United States recently um, is the debate about U.S. military aid, um, both whether there are practical ways to condition or, or, or military aid on on uh, to try to prevent Israeli certain Israeli behaviors, and also. Um, whether you know what kind of impact, whether that would actually have a positive impact on Israeli policy as well. I I just wonder if you have any thoughts for an American audience on on how to think about that question. 
Well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert in, in American policy, but I will say this, and that this, this is a conflict between two unequal entities, and it's not just between Israel and the Palestinians. The international community is invested in this conflict, and the U.S. is maybe heading this, and they're also invested in this. And the fact that the governments of Israel are getting away with this occupation, with a settlement enterprise, with massive human rights violations uh, that we see in Gaza and, of course, in the West Bank, but also right now as we speak in Gaza, uh, is, is, I think the international community does need to acknowledge and take slightly more responsibility for enabling this. Because as long as it's enabling this, uh, the government of Israel will continue to do so. I wanted to, another thing, subject that you have worked on um, is violence in the West Bank. There's a lot of discussion um, in the United States uh, about Palestinian terrorism and about Palestinian incitement to violence. And obviously, of course, there is Palestinian terrorism. Um, I think there's less conversation in the United States about violence or terrorism by Jewish settlers. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about, first of all, what we just know empirically about the level of violence against uh, civilians by both uh, Palestinians and by Jewish settlers in the West Bank, and also about the way that the differing ways that Israel responds to those kinds of violence. Well, thank you for this question, because this is really at the heart of Yestin's work. Uh, what Yestin does, uh, we do many things, but one of them, our main things that we do, one of the main things that we do is that whenever there is an incident of violence by Israeli citizens, by settler violence, like towards Palestinians, then an Israeli volunteer, often women, because most of our volunteers are women, uh, would go and take a testimony alongside uh, a staffer, a, a field researcher, a Palestinian field researcher, obviously, and they will take a testimony from uh, either the victim of the violence and also of people who were present uh, at the scene who, who have added value to, to stay. And if the, the person uh, uh, seeks to do so, then we will aid her in filing a complaint to the Israeli authorities. Now, we will take these testimonies and we will take these complaints and we will represent them, of course, in front of these. We will be there uh, through uh, uh, law firms that we work with, Michael Sfar's law firm, Shlomi Schalia's law firm. We will represent them in front of the Israeli authorities. And uh, this enables us to collect data and information, uh, not only about settler violence, but how Israel, how law enforcement mechanisms by Israeli authorities are reacting to this phenomenon. And I think what uh, there, there's a couple of things to say about this. One, that there is a phenomenon. People should know that there is a phenomenon, an ugly phenomenon, of uh, settlers, of Israeli citizens who violate the rights of Palestinians, who use violence against Palestinians. It's either direct physical violence, it could be uh, stone throwing, it could be property damage, you know, burning of trees, uh, a thievery of olives, destruction of, of all the, uh, all the uh, olive harvests, etc. And it's happening. Now, uh, the second thing in regard to this is that this, uh, this is under occupation. So people have to understand how this is terrorizing the Palestinian community. Because uh, the Palestinians, are, 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 they don't have anyone to, to call when this violence comes in. Because it's the military who is responsible for their security, for they safeguarding their livelihood, their lives. And when these incidents come in, uh, the Palestinians are, are, are completely uh, there in the open without anyone uh, to protect them. And, and more severely is that when we look at, at our data, we see that the Israeli law enforcement mechanisms are failing. 
uh, 91%, 91% of all of the files that Palestinians uh, uh, complain to the Israeli police uh, in regard to settler violence, all 90, have been closed. There was only 8% of indictments. Uh, and 82 of them, 82% of all these files are admittedly by the police due to a failure of an investigation. They admit that there was uh, a criminal offense, uh, but they say it's we, we've, that they haven't managed to find the offender or there's not enough evidence, but they admit that the crime happened. Uh, and, and this, uh, alongside, and also with, with the military as well, what we're seeing with the military is, with them, is the statistics are even worse. When soldiers violate the rights of Palestinians, and 80% of the cases where a Palestinian will complain with the aid of Yeshdin against uh, criminal offenses by, by security force personnel, by soldiers, the military won't even open an investigation. And the chances of, of a complaint leading to an indictment is less than 1%. So, and, and we've also wrote a report about the military's role when it's in the area of where settler violence happens. And we called it standing idly by. Because there's another phenomenon that happens, that the soldiers uh, don't perceive themselves as uh, the protectors of the Palestinians. And often, when there will be violence between settlers and Palestinians, uh, uh, the military will come in and push the Palestinian population away and protect the, the settlers, even while they will be throwing stones at Palestinians, for example. And, and what we have to, to understand is, I think, are, are a couple of things. So one, that it's a really ugly phenomenon that is happening uh, uh, and that the Palestinians have no protection, although they're under the custody of the Israeli military, and they're even regarded as a, a protected population under international law. Uh, two, that there's a culture of impunity. And if you're an Israeli citizen today and you decide to violate the rights of Palestinians, either an Israeli citizen or a soldier, there is, most likely nothing will happen to you. You will be able to go on with your offenses and nothing. You won't be indicted, nothing. Uh, the third thing is, that violence is a political tool. It's, uh, it's a means for political ends to create intimidation in the Palestinian society and eventually to take over Palestinian areas and to expand their settlements and outposts because violence is being used when other mechanisms of taking over and control aren't in place. Uh, so, for example, we're in the midst of the harvest season right now. So in many places, we're Palestinians. So here are the absurdity. So you have a, 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 a thousands of Palestinians who own uh, or farmers and own plots of land. Uh, they uh, because these, some of these lands are adjust or close by to settlements, they cannot go to their own property throughout the entire year. They can only go twice a year for very short periods of time. One of these periods is the olive uh, the olive uh, harvest season. So now they have they have to get an approval by the military for a couple of days in each year. The military tells them, yes, you can go to your land. Uh, for for three days, for four days, for for a week during this time, and then all of a sudden, uh, groups of violent settlers uh, who, who are surprised and don't want the settler, the Palestinian farmers to come to their land, will use violence against them. So they w we have incidents of destruction of olive trees, of thievery of olives. So Palestinian farmers, if they waited all year long to to harvest their olives, will, will come to their plots and see that there's no olives, and even direct violence. So the settlers will come in and say, no, you, you can't be here, and we'll stone, throw stones at them and push them away. You know, since the olive, the, uh, olive harvest season started in, in October, we documented only, you know, Yeshdin, so it's not comprehensive, but we documented 45 incidents. So an average of an incident a day. 
uh, of violence against Palestinian farmers. Uh, incidents of thievery, incidents of, of prevention of access, incidents of damage of trees, and, and direct physical violence against farmers. And this is happening, and this is just one form of violence. You know, there's also the ideological motivated crimes, uh, often referred to as price tag attacks, etc. So there's, there's a lot to say about this. Uh, but eventually, it's, it's a political tool for political gains to push the Palestinian away and eventually taking over their land. Uh, Leo, the last question I wanted to ask you um, was, was just a more personal question. It's something that always fascinates me about Israeli, Jewish, Israeli human rights activists is um, what it is like to be someone uh, who does the work you do, very engaged with the rights of Palestinians um, in amidst a, an Israeli society, you know, where um, uh, there's not very much concerned, by and large, with the rights of Palestinians. And um, and I just and 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 I wonder what it is like in your daily life to go through go through life with both living in Israeli society and yet doing the work that you do. Look, I really believe uh, that it's unacceptable to live in a society that doesn't treat all its inhabitants equal. Uh, and and uh, and the Palestinians have been living under uh, occupation and without rights and. They're being fragmentized, and and we Israel, uh, we're not the only responsible. You know, as I said earlier, the international community also has a, a lot of responsibility, but Israel has the main responsibility for this. And and I think that we need to take responsibility and act in order to end first and foremost end the occupation, regardless of the political uh, aim that one believes. If it's a two state solution, a democracy, whatever, federation, a confederation, the occupation has to end, uh, not tomorrow, uh, not today, yesterday. It just has to end. It, it's unjustifiable in any way. Uh, and I think that's, that's uh, the duty of, of, of our generation to end it and to end it fast and quickly. And, and, uh, and we will do so. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something. I really believe that if there was a change in leadership in Israel, uh, then the Israeli public will massively support the end of occupation because although it's true that the Israeli public votes and enables and accepts these occupation policies, I do am a firm believer that uh, if the government of Israel, the leadership in Israel, will change its course, then it will get its support. Because, you know, the, the, the average citizen everywhere in the world, uh, you know, supports the government and the government policies and, 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 and buys into them and, and they accept the general notions. But if the government changes, then its policies and the public will support. And you can look even at, at, at examples from recent history, even the disengagement from 2005, for example, that, that you know, from the Gaza, Israeli right? government from Gaza, of course, decided that it has no interest to, to, to be in Gaza anymore. And the Israeli public at large supported the disengagement just like that. And nobody would have believed it. Uh, so I do believe that uh, a change in policy by leadership, which will only change due to public pressure and international pressure, will eventually also lead to change in, in public, what is perceived as public opinion today. Lior, thank you very, very much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. This is great. Thank you.